Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 37, and this week I spoke to another very dynamic duo, Jess Schreibstein and Claire Moskell, who together created a knitting pattern company called Mild Woman. Jess and Claire have been on my radar for years now. With their modern and minimal knitting aesthetics, their very adorable friendship that involves knitting the same things and collaborating on incredible projects. And I'm really excited that I get to share some of their story now. They explain how their friendship came to be and how they collaborated on Mild Woman. Jess and Claire get into the specifics of how they ran this project and talk about how important it is to value and properly compensate people, even your friends, especially your friends, for their creative output. Jess and Claire talk about their first knitting projects and their first sweaters and how they encourage each other with their creative practices. There are pictures of each of their first sweaters in the show notes for you to see, which I gotta say are remarkably less embarrassing than my own first projects, which I think speaks to their aesthetics and their creative abilities. Listen on for our whole chat. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and I'm here with Jess and Claire. Hey, Jess. Hey, Claire. What's up? Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, I will add your last names to the uh, show notes, but that was getting weird, me trying to say them over and over and messing up every time, so happy Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. I know we, I think I probably sent you the first email being like, Hi, I'm fangirling over your friendship, like, <laughs> at least two years ago, maybe yeah, it's probably two whole years ago. The podcast has only been a thing for like two years. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I've been following along for a long time. But where are you guys? We right now are in my basement guest bedroom in <laughs> northern Virginia, right outside of D.C. Yeah, and, and I came and visited Claire. I live in Baltimore. Oh, cool. Did you, where did you meet? Well, who wants to tell the story? You can go tell the I'll, story. I'll start. I'll start. You start. Well, we, we actually, we, we met, uh, like three jobs ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three jobs. Like we, we both met at, um, when we were working at NPR, National Public Radio. Um, and, uh, we worked there together and then we worked at our next jobs together. Mm-hmm. We, like we both moved over to an agency and worked there together and then we, finally stopped working together, which is very sad. <laughs> but we be, we became really close friends when um, we were working down the hall from each other at NPR. Awesome. And just and that... found out that I went to art school in Baltimore. I went oh, to, yeah. to Micah. Yeah. And I remember you just burst into the tiny little like design closet they shoved all the designers into. And you were like, you went to Micah, let's talk about Baltimore. And I was like, hello, nice to meet you. <laughs> I, I sort of remember that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> full circle and we started hanging out hanging out and finding that we just had really interesting things to say and yeah. we're just yeah super interested in the other person's interests which is I don't know a good way to start a friendship yeah yeah definitely so you so you both became friends you're working at NPR and then when do you realize that you're both like voracious knitters <laughs> I was the voracious knitter, and Claire was the curious newbie. I actually yeah. taught Claire to knit. Oh, she did. What? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I started a um, uh, like a well, to call it a knitting club at NPR is a little gracious. Like it was literally me and tell like I don't know downstairs telling people to like come knit with me. I'll mm-hmm. teach you how to knit, and then like 
you and I think Betsy and a couple other people came down and mostly just observed and watched because everybody seemed a little too intimidated to try to do it themselves. But then Claire was like, I'm not too intimidated. I want to learn this. Mm -hmm. I live near a yarn store. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You did live near a yarn store at the time. Yeah. So, um, So Claire really wanted to pick it up. What was the first thing you made? Did you make a cowl? I made a cowl out of Manos Maxima... Oh, yeah, yeah. Wool. It was an undyed natural wool. Mm-hmm. And I made a very thin, drapey cowl out of it with a lot of twisted knit stitches. Yeah. <laughs> and then I eventually unraveled that, and I still have that yarn, and I've, like, used it in a couple of things. Wait, you unraveled your first project? I did. It wasn't great. Oh. I'm not type, <laughs> I'm not type A, but it was nice wool, so I unraveled it. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's how we became Knitting Buddies. And then I essentially just created an obsessive knitter friend so who could obsess about knitting with me (laughs) that's amazing okay so claire's like knit her first project it's this monos undyed cowl (laughs) did you use a pattern what happened here was this jess just being like here's what you do i didn't use a pattern jess was like this is what gauge is and oh did i really i got into gauge wow well you talked about gauge you're like i'm gonna teach you how to like do there's two stitches this is one of them you're just gonna do it this Mm -hmm. way You're going to knit in this style. There's mm-hmm. two styles. And, and, I, and I showed you throwing. You did. You showed me throwing. Yeah. I mm. threw for like three years, yeah, which is insane, which is insane. Yeah. And now, now I'm picking my knit stitches, not my pearls, because that's... It's another level. Yeah. Well, my gauge is terrible like that. But yeah. but yeah, you taught me like the basics mm-hmm. of the kind of like fundamentals and building blocks. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I feel like we met like maybe twice in the knitting club. And then, the quote unquote, yeah, I was say, like, let's, let's be clear. This wasn't, <laughs> it was, yeah, it, it got thinner every flow. single week of like people, like less people coming and like pulling out these like cat's cradles out of their bags, being like, oh. I need help. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then, Jess is like, what did I do? Yeah, you're like, okay, cool, great. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Um, but then, because I lived near a yarn store, I used to live within like, a 10 minute walking distance of fiber space, which was a really great local yarn store in Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. But I live within a really small walk of fiber space. So I would just go there on the weekends and buy more yarn mm-hmm. and buy a bunch of needles and would like look at all the pattern books and they carry Brooklyn tweed there. So I got very into Brooklyn tweed very fast. And I feel like I would just like come into work and be like, look what I'm making. And you were like, what? Why didn't you learn how to decrease? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you picked it up really, really. I mean, you like, you just like got, like I had been knitting. I'd been taught how to knit by my great grandma, like in sixth grade or something. And so we met when, I don't know, we were like 24, 25 or yeah. something. And like you got on my level in like a few months. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, great, I've been working on this for 10 plus years, Claire's been working on it for three months, and <laughs> awesome, like, we're both making sweaters. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's, the, that's the benefit sorry. of learning when you're older, mm. is that, like, mm. my my mentality of that, which is going in, and I remember you saying you learned as a kid, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, if kids can do this, there's no reason why I, as an adult, should not be able to figure out the basic principles of this, mm-hmm. and just kind of go with it. And I feel like it really, obviously, I'm a creative person, and yeah, it really spoke to me in that way because it was a very open-ended thing with very basic mathematical principles, mm-hmm. and I also really like math, and so mm-hmm. kind of fusing those two things together mm-hmm. just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so for a while, especially that first like couple of years, 
every project, the challenge was to just like learn a new skill, mm-hmm. whether it was like purling, decreases, seaming, whatever it was. It was just to like try to build off of that. Yeah. Hyperspeed. Yeah. Yeah. Knitting. Right. I was talking to a coworker about this because she uses every knitting project that she does. She tries to pick up a new skill. Like it's, she'll pick it because it has color work or it has this or that. And I was sort of like, that's awesome. And I love that you do that. But I have like way too, my taste is too similar (laughs) across everything that like every time I pick up a new project, I'm like, oh, well, I can mostly do all the things that are required of me in this project because like I like to wear stockinette, like slightly oversized top down raglan sweaters. (laughs) And like, it's sort of that you get to this point or I'm getting to this point where I'm like, well, I want to do these other things but I don't have an interest in this like in like lace work or I don't have an interest in that but it's like interesting that that was your your like newbie mentality was to just jump straight in and be like okay I need to learn the next thing and then there's this next thing and this next thing yeah I wondered too because people always come at it from a different place but a lot of times people have this a similar story in that like someone in their family and it was usually like a woman in their family taught them to knit when they were young so it was your grandmother that taught you yeah for me it was my my great grandma and then my grandma they both taught me kind of like different techniques um but it was uh yeah it was kind of hard to to really kind of stick with it because I was young like I was in middle school um and then I continued to tinker around with knitting a little bit in college um right. and right after college like I think I played around with um with hats and fingerless gloves like basically kind of one skein projects that wouldn't beat my budget um right and I was still like I was definitely interested in fiber arts in college I just wasn't knitting that much like I spent um you know like half a year in in Italy studying painting in, in Italian and I took a batik class there and that was really cool um and then, you know, I was living um, in L.A. for school um, and my, my aunt got really into weaving and she got her own floor loom and all this stuff. And so she would take me to these weaving studios out in the desert in Southern California somewhere. I don't even remember where it was, but like I remember getting really into that and like going over her place and practicing weaving for a while. So it was like it was just always kind of there in the background. I um, I prioritized painting in, in college. Um, I was like one class shy of like getting my minor, but I, you know, I've been painting since, since middle school, um, pretty voraciously like oil painting. Um, and, and so that was kind of my, my predominant creative output, um, until then. And then, um, I think it was just like getting out of college and grounding myself in, uh, you know, kind of adulthood and having to figure out what that creative, um, you know, that creative outlook could look like. Um, you know, I, I did keep an easel, um, in my space, um, and I would paint, but, um, knitting just started to become this, uh, this kind of tool to work with color and form and, uh, you know, texture in a way that was really portable and really kind of adaptable to, you know, a busy lifestyle. Right. So I picked knitting back up, um, uh, pretty strongly, like kind of my early twenties, uh, mid twenties. And then, and then I moved to Baltimore. Um, and this was after, you know, Claire and I had met, we were both knitting. Um, uh, I had taken a, a new job at this agency in DC. Um, so I had this hour and a half commute each way every day. And, right. um, you, you helped convince me to, to buy the yarn to make my mm-hmm. first sweater. Cause you're like, now's the best time to do it. You're going to have all this time on your hands. Like, just go for it. Um, and it was, I was pretty intimidated, you know, it's like, 
when you're just used to knitting hats or fingerless gloves, mm-hmm. <laughs> like being like, oh man, all right, I'm going to take seven skeins of yarn and make a sweater and not mess up. Like it's, it was a lot. And then, um, from there I didn't look back. It was just like sweaters all the way. Yeah. Do you remember what your first sweater pattern was? I mean, I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's, uh, Michelle Wang's, uh, Bedford. Um, oh, okay. yeah. it's like a, it's basically a simple gray, uh, like kind of faux raglan pullover with this really nice texture, like kind of fake, it's, it's not true cable, um, but it's like this kind of appearance of cable, um, texture in the body and then a reverse stockinette in the sleeves. Um, uh-huh. and I knit it, I knit it in, uh, in shelter. Um, and it's lovely. I still have that sweater. I, mm-hmm. I, I wear it kind of like around the house, you know, it's like kind of like a comfy, um, you know, simple sweater. Um, but yeah, that just, that just opened up a whole other world of thinking about, um, knitting as a way to transform your wardrobe being like, Oh, I can't find things. I can't find hundred percent wool sweaters in the store. Like what? <laughs> I guess I have to make it. Um, right. Like you go into any, any store, right. Like looking for 100% wool sweater that isn't tissue thin. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like right. everything is just like a thin, like cashmere, merino wool, like tissue paper thin. Or it's not the right color that sweater. you want. Oh, yeah. Or it's different color. Yeah. It's like oh, so much stuff, right? Um, yeah. And so that just became really empowering to be able to think about knitting, not so much as just a creative outlet or something like fun to to do, but or like accessorize with, but like, oh, wow, like I'm going to make uh, a sweater that I actually want to wear like every day. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was really, really cool. I remember yeah. I wore I wore a sweater, um, Wolfolk's noose sweater, that like short oh, yeah. sleeve uh-huh. textured piece. I wore it to my current job, like in the beginning, maybe like three years ago. And I my boss at the time, he was like, Oh, is this a Eileen Fisher sweater? Yeah. I really like it. And I was like, No, I actually made it. And he just like stared agape at me. He was like, No offense, but what are you doing here? You should be doing that full time. <laughs> <laughs> well I basically do when I'm not here it's what I'm doing to have your boss say that I was like okay well you're like well I thought you had to make some creative exactly exactly yeah do you remember what your first sweater was Claire I do it's actually it's funny it's in this storage closet right next to me it was um another Brooklyn Tweed sweater it was Hall H-O-L-L designed it was a really early one who designed it I can't remember but it was a it was a wool people sweater from I think wool people like one or two and it was a dolman um like body was one piece sleeves are another and I knit it in the really light gray color and the sleeves I attached which you attach I knit it in the cast iron dark gray color like got color blocking creative (laughs) but yeah I loved that piece it took me forever and it's just it's mostly it's just yeah stuck in it it would take me like no time now but at the time it took me forever I didn't know I just learned what blocking was which was good and so I so I blocked it but the seaming was awful and so I think probably like two years after I finished it I took apart all the seams and I re-seamed it correctly Mm. Oh, wow. Which is something that I just, I love about knitting because, like, like I undid my very first ever cowl and, like, saved that yarn for something else. Like, I just, you can redo part so of, a, of a project. Yeah. It is so malleable, but it also is, like, so it's such a strong thing, too. Like, you really put wear and tear on these mm-hmm. pieces, totally. but you can 
quickly undo them or change things, which is partially why I like it, the customization part. Mm -hmm. Right, definitely. I love that about knitting. I'm always, like, afraid of entering the world of sewing because I'm like, but if you cut it out... Then what? <laughs> like, like, you can't, can't go back. back. <laughs> At least with knitting, you can always rip back. Or like you said, there's this whole other life that this project that maybe you made a long time ago can take. If you just wash your wool and try again, which is really cool. It's really exciting. Yeah, sewing is a beast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm like slowly thinking about tiptoeing into that area. Do you get, do both of you sew? I don't know. I, I don't do. Think I remember yeah. do. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, tell me more. Um, what that was something like my mom sew? taught me when yeah. I was super oh. young. My mom tried yeah. to teach me unsuccessfully. I was not into it. And then my, my same grandma who taught me, who helped teach me to knit, um, also uh, taught me to sew. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I hear you. It's the same thing, right? It's like, it was my same anxiety of like, oh, like once it's cut, like that's it. Ooh, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a little nerve-wracking but um doing it with someone who's really experienced kind of next to me was really empowering um Mm -hmm. Claire's definitely more advanced than I am like I'm kind of at the like the um like the grain line studio tank top Wixton kimono level like you know uh relatively straightforward advanced beginner patterns (laughs) right which meets my style anyway so it's cool but I mean I am excited about maybe someday like I look at trousers or jackets Mm -hmm. or something and those would be really amazing to make sometime I've I've come to the realization that for me sewing it's not something that I do because like oh I want to be able to make all of my clothing and this Mm -hmm. is a very like purposeful utilitarian thing which I struggled with for a little bit in the beginning. Like I wanted it to be like that, but I also am a person who really likes to buy pieces from other people who do that really, really well. Right. Um, yeah. Like this Elizabeth Susan kimono. <laughs> like I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> Elizabeth Susan. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Like I would, I'm yeah. very happy to support other people who are a lot better at that. And like it is their yeah. passion, but I kind of with, um, Living near a yarn store that was really great. Also, when I lived um, in Alexandria, there was a sewing store mm-hmm. yep. that opened up nearby called Stitch Sew Shop, and they have an amazing collection of fabric, and they have machines, and they do classes, mm-hmm. and everyone who works there is just, like, the nicest person. It's a great space. It's a really great space, and they just, they kind of cater to a bunch of different tastes, which I really liked. Like, yeah. they have the merchant mills linen and their and their patterns which I really am drawn to and they also have really great basics like grain line and then they have some stuff which is like very quirky and cute which is not me at all but it's really popular and I see people that are making that stuff all the time and they she just like totally has her bases covered and it's great right yeah right I find this it's a little bit hard to talk about because I feel like the making world as a whole has like so many different little corners. And I think maybe seeing part of why I've been so interested in following both of you is that like, it was immediately like, oh, okay, yes. <laughs> For I guess I made a motion that was like, I am gravitating towards you. Like, <laughs> here I am like latching on. Like it's, I don't often see my like personal style reflected in 
a lot of like the knitwear that I see in the world or like that's even from big companies where like I want to love what they're making but then I'm like cool it looks great in that one really specific context of that person that you modeled and styled this way but like incorporating that into my everyday wear is just not going to happen or like oh yeah I love that this is something that other people love but I'm not ever really going to be into this like super brightly colored thing so it was like nice to see to see both of you and be like oh another like a black sweater oh a gray sweater like these really simple silhouettes that like <laughs> but that like it's validating to kind of to see that to, to look out into like the Instagram world and see that and in addition to all the other beautiful things that exist but kind of be like oh that resonates with me and like you know I had I can I'm in my closet too and like there's my same card the kimono that you're wearing from Elizabeth Susan like you know these workhorse garments but I guess that kind of gets me into wanting to talk to you about mild woman um because that very much to me like kind of embodies that aesthetic that I'm that I'm talking about of this like very sort of minimal and modern and um, what I find like really beautiful and appealing to want to knit and wear. And I'd love for you both to talk to me about how that came to be and um, yeah, and sort of your, your vision with it. Yeah. So I can, I can take that one or start with it. Um, yeah. So I've been, I've actually been kind of like sitting on that name mild woman for a few years and um, I got the Instagram handle and everything long before I never, I knew what I wanted to do with it, you know, like, and, and Claire and I had also been talking for, for years about mm. how someday we'd like to do some kind of creative project or business, something with each other. Um, we just felt like, I mean, we'd had two, we'd worked two separate jobs with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked side by side on a lot of different projects and just like really compatible in the way that we approach um, work creatively or um, uh, really methodically like we, we just kind of operate in the same way um, and think about things in the same way so we just felt like we would be really good partners in some kind of creative endeavor and you know we'd, we'd had a couple ideas in the past started working on different things and for whatever reason that didn't necessarily net out um, but um, I guess about a year ago now like I started thinking of mild woman as the the like kind of namesake or like creative umbrella for um, all of the the knitwear stuff that I was thinking through and starting to design. And I um, I still even have kind of a hard time considering myself anything close to a knitwear designer. You know, like mm. I kind of fell into this where um, I went to Marley's Have Company residency, um, made a tank top out of a bunch of kind of scrap yarn I brought with me and then all of a sudden like the internet freaks out and they're like oh my gosh like please design the pattern I'm like sure like this wasn't that hard but okay so like <laughs> I wrote up the yeah. pattern put it into a word doc and then pdf'd it and then sold it on Ravelry and people loved it and the response was really really positive yeah um but it was I mean it was so kind of it was so junior and I'm like like yeah, this is, this is me just putting something together with the skill set I have. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm really glad that people were really responsive. Uh, like people responded to it really well um, and really positively. Um, and then the same kind of thing came up where I'd been writing for Karen Templer's blog, um, uh, Fringe Association. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, every month I was basically uh, creating a swatch of something and then writing about it. And, you know, I when Karen and I kind of came up with that concept and I started working on it, 
I was excited about it because I knew it would offer um, kind of a creative impetus every single month, like force me to think outside of the like the next project or the next pattern that I have to finish um, and start thinking about, uh, you know, what are the, the fibers, the textures, the patterns and stuff that are really interesting to me and as kind of little thought starters um, uh, to something bigger. Um, and the resist hat kind of came along with that. Like I looked out in the world, there was, you know, the, the pussy hat, but then a lot of people were um, starting to put text into knitwear um, after the, um, uh, the, the election. Um, but no one was kind of like seizing on the, like what I thought was kind of like the biggest rallying cry was like the resistance or like, um, you know, like no one had really kind of taken that mantle and done anything with it uh, in the knitwear world in a creative way. And so it just seemed to me like really easy to like just put it onto a hat. <laughs> and, and so I put it on a hat and then I was like, man, okay, this is now two projects that I've kind of designed by accident. Um, and instead of me just, uh, uh, just throwing them into Word documents in this like really... <laughs> Uh, elementary way, um, you know, I pulled in Claire and I'm like, this could be a foundation for something bigger. Um, and I, you know, I look around at the knitwear universe and there are other designers who have, you know, their, they have their own real name, right? And then they have their own, um, you know, kind of invented brand name, if you will, for their knitwear designs. And that grows over time, right? And it's like, first it was like part of the pressure of like, oh my gosh, like I have to release like five new patterns in a year if this is going to be legitimate. And I'm like, well, no, like I could release a single pattern a year because, you know, I have a full-time job and we're busy women with other and have other interests, right? It's like, there's no expectation that this has to transform into something that is this like kind of huge unwieldy thing. It can just become this, uh, you know, this, this identity, this, um, this kind of foundation to release uh, new creative products into the world um, when we wanted to. And Claire and I both have a ton of ideas of, of what that could be in the future. Um, you know, we just launched Mild Woman in January um, and Claire did all of the incredible branding and redesign of the, the beach tank pattern and the resist hat pattern um, with all of the Mild Woman branding. And, and she can talk about all the work that kind of went into that creatively. Um, we were both really aligned from the get-go about just the creative uh, kind of creative juice that had to be mild woman, like what the identity would look and feel like, like we were totally on the same page from the beginning. Um, right. And then I think that will also inform um, any future patterns um, as well as future collaborations of other, other people, um, women or, um, you know, non-binary folks we'd want to work with um, to also release um, their designs underneath, underneath that name. So it's, it's just kind of the beginning and tip of the iceberg, but um, it felt really kind of necessary at this point to, um, you know, for me to take that work more seriously and, and kind of give it a creative home. And then also to partner with Claire on, you know, how it would actually live and show up in the world. Um, and we talked really early on and kind of like you said, Ani, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to find your corner of a specific niche world that feels really like it resonates with you or feels really different and new when it's so dense. And so part of our initial discussion about that wasn't just about like the name mild woman and the label and what it would stand for. It was making exactly what we wanted to exist yeah. out there because like we, we didn't think it existed. Yeah, totally. Like right. you look around like all the different brands that we've been inspired with since we've been knitting, like 
players already named a few of them, like Brooklyn Tweed, like Quinson Company. Like there's so many incredible designers out there doing this stuff all the time. And they're, but they're also keeping up with this expectation that they're launching, you know, 12 new patterns every single season. Right. And then it's like, everything has to be new and interesting and complex. And, um, you know, I really respect someone like, I mean, Elizabeth Suzanne again, like I really respect her model where she's like, you know what, this is like my core and every once in a while I might make updates because I feel like updates are needed, but like, yeah, this is the good stuff. And like, I will add on to that as needed. Like, I also really admire um, Wixton, uh, Jenny Gordy, and, um, you know, like, for the past several years, been following her for a while. And, um, you know, it seems like only recently has she been able to kind of, like, ramp up the amount of output she's been able to to house underneath the Wixton label. But, like, for a while, you know, when, when her daughter was young, um, you know, she, she had a couple hats, like, hat patterns out there in the world. And I think the like baby harem pants and like the little toddler bloomers and like that was kind of it. But like the patterns are really like on point, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, she just had a, like a very clear identity of, uh, you know, who she was and what she wanted to be. Um, yeah. And so when we were thinking about Mild Woman, it's like what doesn't actually exist out there in the world? That's just like it's simple. It's straightforward. Um it feels modern and like real, you know, it's also like one of yeah. my biggest pet peeves is representation in the knitting world. Um, you know, yeah. whether it's like, it's people of color, different body types, um, uh, women, but also, um, you know, not, not just like women and like gay dudes, <laughs> all the folks in between. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and making sure that we could kind of take all that into consideration to feel like, uh, we were out there playing in that space that, that no one else was kind of speaking to. And it was definitely something that wasn't just in the naming or the patterns. It was really part of the branding as well. Mm. So something super early that I was thinking when creating the branding and like, it was very collaborative, but I would kind of like make various briefs and then present them to Jess because I feel like it's kind of funny. Like we, are creative people, but we're also business women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we really had this relationship while working on Mild Woman of being less like two BFFs working on a fun project and like really took it into like a like client kind of relationship, mm-hmm. which I think was really good and healthy. Um, and I would present you various briefs and like kind of like narrowing in on sketches and things. Mm-hmm. And so it was really collaborative in that way. It was really great. And we were totally on the same page the entire way through, which was super helpful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're both come from like agency world. That's been part of our, our career trajectories. And so I feel like we knew how to treat and respect the other person's kind of creative inputs. Um, and we were also just aligned from the get go anyway. So it also helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this too, but what Jess mentioned, like respecting the other person's creative ideas. It wasn't just like uh, saying yes to someone's idea because you didn't want to offend them. It was mm-hmm. also valuing the, their time. So like Mild Woman is really like, I collaborate on it, but it's Jess's baby and it's patterns that she's designed. And for as, now. For, for, yeah, for now. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as and such, Claire, and but as such you, like, you really hired me to help you on it. Yeah which was super important to it too. And like Um, we had a really early discussion of payment and ownership over it. And you wanted me to charge you a competitive rate for it. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to, because I knew how much time it would take. And so we really entered it again, like 
best friends working on a project we felt really passionate about, but also mm-hmm. respecting what the other person brought to the table, which was super huge uh, into it. Like Jess has said, we're both, we both have full-time jobs and are super busy with right. things outside of work. And so to have a side project that we knew would come to fruition fully and like be out in the world the way we wanted it to, it was mm-hmm. a lot of time. And so mm-hmm. just respecting the other person's time with, you know, financial benefit is like shallow as that may sound or whatever I think it was super important and it's like being on the same page with who makes the money when the pattern like sales come in Mm -hmm. and when are you going to pay me and how much are you going to pay me and we talked about that in the beginning and it felt really good to be on the same page not just with our creative ideas but with ownership Mm -hmm. and valuing valuing the other person's opinion and skills that's a really big part of this and I think why it's worked so well yeah I mean like and just just kind of on that same just that same conversation real quick around uh, creative work and also like compensation. Like it was really important yeah. for me to like be able to pay you for your creative work. Um, and then that was also really important for me around um, all the new photography we did around uh, beach tank and resist hat, um, how I compensated my friends slash models for their work, as well as the people who donated their space for the shoots. Like, um, we were just really, really tight on this and treated it like a job from the beginning, um, which I think a lot of people tend to undervalue. Um, so like with the, um, you know, the release of, of mild woman, as well as the resist hat, like I had to go into, like, I went into debt, you know, like quite a, <laughs> a bit of debt, right. To be able to, um, what I thought was uh, fairly compensating all of my friends who had collaborated with me on this project. Right. So like, you know, I paid my photographer, I, I paid Claire, like I paid uh, another friend of mine who uh, helped secure all the locations and uh, nailed on all the details for the shoot, who was essentially like my producer on set um, to yeah. get a ton of food for the, for the shoot. So I could like keep people fueled throughout the day um, for, uh, you know, compensating the, the folks who donated their space. Like I didn't pay them in money. I pay them in bouquets of flowers and like coffee, (laughs) you know, as a thank you. Same with all my models, um, you know, paying them, um, you know, with some nice gifts, like for each of them for like their time, as well as like the handmade knitwear, I like just gave them. But like all of that, I felt like is so important. And I, you know, we just kind of went on this trajectory about, about finances, but like, I I think that's often um, very deeply undervalued in the creative world. Like people are expected to work for free because of the opportunity or because mm-hmm. it's fun. Right. But it's like, no, that's actually yeah. a lot of work and it's a lot of time and investment. And, um, you know, when, when the mild woman, uh, and the resist had did launch, it was always an intention of mine to donate a portion of those proceeds, um, from the resist hat to a cause. So I wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, profiting essentially off this moment in history like I wanted my mm-hmm. myself and my my um you know colleagues on this work to be like compensated for the creativity and work but also be able to to give back some of that as well but like I got some initial pushback from people who didn't really didn't really get that or understand that being like no no like I'm not just living you know off the the benefits of resist hat sales over here right it's like I'm paying myself and my creative partners back first because I value their work and then from there I'll be able to pay it forward but um you know it's I I think it's just kind of so critical you you know you value yourself and you value your work first yeah absolutely and it's really nice to have you guys talk really candidly about 
the specifics of it and the fact that like you are both really really close friends who have this relationship outside of this but you still treated it in this way that made it fair and equitable and like just it's nice to hear how that all went down because it I often wonder about like collaborative work and people in partnership and stuff in business and how they how they make that work and how those conversations go down without feeling like you know you're talking about something you can't talk about um but also also something I wanted to touch on which you guys have talked about but I'd love to talk more about is kind of the fitting all these things in around the full-time job and the fact and and I guess the way I sort of see it sometimes is like the freedom of the full-time job, like the freedom, the financial freedom that that can allow to be able to look at a project like Mild Woman and say, okay, like these are my goals with it. It doesn't have to, I don't need to like skimp on paying Claire because I don't need to live off of this money. Can you talk with me about just more about kind of the full-time work plus all the hustles? Yeah. I mean, Fitting in anything around a full-time job when you think about the time you're actually at work and like Jess said earlier, if you have a really long commute, like in some ways that can be great because like she mentioned, I used to also fit knitting into my like hour and a half commute every single day on public transit Mm -hmm. and then I moved and now I'm driving myself to work and I don't have that. So like really basic things like finding time for something when it is a hobby can Mm -hmm. change so quickly and drastically and my time for that just really went down. Um... But as somebody who's always made my living off of like being creative, I started. Actually, you should you should tell folks they may not know you're an art director. Oh yeah, so I'm. I started. Uh, my gosh, seven years ago as a graphic designer, mm-hmm. and I've always had graphic design jobs. And my current job is a mix of design, um, but I'm also an art director, and I manage a team of designers at my current job, and art direction is a big part of where, I mean, it's my title. It's like where my interests are going. It's one of the things I actually loved most about my album was art directing those photo shoots. Like that mm-hmm. was such a joy. Yeah. Um, so as somebody who's always made their livelihood off of being creative and like paid their taxes off of it and like bought a house off of being somebody who's creative, that is something mm-hmm. that like just touched upon. I think there's such a misconception among people who make their livelihoods that way that like, oh, this is a thing that's fun for you. Like, can you just do this at a discounted rate for me? Cause I need oh gosh, help. the amount of times like people, like coworkers will ask you to like make them a sweater. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing something. Like I'm wearing a pair of socks that I've knit and they're like, oh my gosh, can I have them? And I like jokingly one time quoted somebody like $250 for a pair of handmade socks. And they were like, but why? Yeah. And I was like, well, materials, labor, my time, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, ha ha, mind. Yeah. But like, and that's yeah. a joke. I would never actually charge $250 make a pair of socks because my time is more valuable than made for selling a pair of socks. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's so true. And like, you wouldn't ask an accountant to do your taxes for you. Cause like, that's the thing that they do all the time and they're really good at it. And isn't this fun for you? So I think it's a creative because the output looks accessible or whatever I mean like to get kind of off of fiber anytime you see a modernist painting in a museum there's always some mm-hmm. blowhard walking by it's like oh my toddler can do that mm-hmm. or like a new logo redesign is something that's really basic and it costs a quarter million dollars and people are like oh I've done that for 10 bucks it's super easy the reality is just no just always remember that's not the answer it's mm-hmm. always no you can't yeah. do that this takes a very specific skill and thought process and approach it is all a very highly valued 
skill and design rules a big part of the world and in my mind in many different ways. Um, and so that's kind of the, the mindset I've always had and was really, I think, drilled into me when I was in college again at Micah. That was a big part of my professor's messaging to us, especially the closer we got to finishing up school was, yes, websites exist where you can do spec work for 20 bucks and maybe someone will pay you off of it, but don't do that because mm. you just like, if you want to look at it financially again, you've just paid a lot of money for this education. Mm. That's the value that's in it. Like if you've paid money for it, you're acknowledging the fact that this is something that's valuable. So you should treat it as such. And, yeah. and that just like that, just that's how you treat yeah. your, all your work, like you're knitting everything. It's just like, this is my time and my energy. And it's like, I'm going to make this valuable. Yeah. And when, again, like, when you work so many hours every single week, it's not like you work and then you skip home and you're home. Like mm-hmm. you commute home. You can be yeah. exhausted from your mm-hmm. day. It'll be yeah. all the energy that I personally have sometimes to come and like cook a meal from scratch and to yeah clean up my mess. Like that is my energy of the day. And so to have a project on the side where you're devoting a significant amount of your mm-hmm. very, very precious time to doing something that like you don't quote unquote necessarily need to be doing it is a really big ask and so I know that Jess and I are on the same page with that so that's again one of like the mindsets that we entered this project of mild women with mm-hmm. is like not only are we respecting each other's time as creative people and you know intellectual property that we're bringing to this project it was the valuable like minutes and seconds that we spent we on it we were working it. on that thing for like 10 months we were working on it for a really long wow. time we were yeah. you know it's funny is like before this before this conversation with you Ani um you know, Claire and I talked on the phone earlier this week, and I'm like, hey, girl, like, have you been knitting lately? Like, when, <laughs> when are, like we're about to have this conversation about knitting, and I'm like, honestly, I haven't been knitting a whole lot, because work's just been insane, and she's like, yeah, yeah me neither. <laughs> so I'm like, great, great, two folks who are working to refine their knitting juju are going to be interviewed on a knitting podcast, this is awesome. But, no, um, that's perfect, yeah. But yeah, like, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's real, like, Claire and I yeah. are both kind of at the at a similar point in our careers where we're in um, we're I don't know eight ten years into um, into our defined careers. We're both in management roles. It's like the the amount of time I had five years ago, just given the um, the intensity of my work then versus what it is now, um, it's very different. And so like being able to like go home you know, at six o'clock and then have the rest of the evening to do whatever I wanted isn't necessarily the case anymore. You know, like sometimes I might be leaving work at seven or I might be getting to work at seven or, um, you know, just other expectations, um, on your time and and the energy, um, are very real. So, um, you know, it's, uh, part of what I, you know, I, I hope to do is, um, continue to, uh, you know, work on stuff that excites me um, and doesn't necessarily feel like work, right? So I have a lot of unfinished projects right now, but I kind of feel okay with that because I'd rather be spending that time working on something that I find interesting and also relaxing and um, something I'm going to want to wear. And if something is kind of losing its luster, then it's like, it's okay. Set it aside for a while. It's Mm -hmm. not going anywhere, right? Like I've been working on this one Magdalena scarf for like three years yeah, I have, like, a two-year-old scarf project. With I, I we, bought it. It. we bought that yarn at Rhinebeck two years ago. Yeah. I'm still working on that godforsaken scarf. But I love it, but it's just... We'll finish. Yeah, we'll finish. Um, and, yeah, just being real with yourself. And then, you know, in, in terms of, like, not only finishing projects, but even the, the things that I want to 
finished designing, right? It's like that project right, right. there and racked up, racked up so many ideas in my head of like, you know, I want to make these kinds of sweaters because they shockingly don't exist in the world. And like, they're not mm. hard, right? Like, I, I think I find it so impossible to just find a basic set and sleeve crew neck sweater, period. Like stocking it, like it doesn't exist. Um, yeah. you know, and it's, it's something I want to design and design well. Um, it's, um, it's that it's like maybe just a really great textured, like drop shoulder sweater also doesn't. And I mean, I'm like, there's plenty of drop shoulder sweater designs out there in the world, but like the exact one I have in my head of like the attention to detail, like maybe a Julie Hoover might have, right. It's like mm-hmm. such small, right. delicate detail, but like really, really smart that takes something from, a basic, simple kind of beginner sweater to something just a little more elevated, but still super like deceivingly simple. Like that's the kind of work I want to be putting out there. Um, but in the meantime, when you're, you're juggling jobs, you know, you just, you got to be real with yourself. And, um, sometimes it's, you know, nine o'clock and you've just got to make lunch the next day. And maybe you'll have half an hour the next day that you can squeeze in submitting. And that's, that's okay. You know, you just got to be okay with that. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that. Like, I think, I I know that both of you are like incredibly busy people who have like a thousand different hobbies and I shouldn't call them hobbies, but like interest groups that like you, they're, they're disparate and they're not necessarily, they don't fit neatly into this box of like fiber arts or whatever. And that's like, I think a really big part of where I aim to take the work with, with the podcast is like, we're not just people who knit or, or just we're not just in this fiber arts world, like we exist in the world. And that's why our kind of unique set of experiences and our jobs and all these things that we're bringing to the table are, that's interesting. That's really important to me. It's important to me to know how people make their money and how they don't make their money. You know, if like, if that's not a thing that's bringing you a source of income, talk to me about why that is and, and why you're, you know, why it is that you're doing it anyway and how you're spending your time and, the fact that you're not knitting right now because you're doing a bunch of other stuff. Like, you know, it's, I think that's what, what you both acknowledge is the beauty of it is like, it's always there. And I have days where I don't, I don't, you know, days that are just shitty, just like shitty days. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, well, there's still knitting, you know, like <laughs> at least there's still knitting. Like, you know, I might not do it for six months or I might get off of it because I'm busy or because like something stopped me from wanting to knit for a while. But the fact that it's like still there and you can always come back to it and like Claire's first scarf, you can always rip it out and make it into something new. Is that, did you say that you have that wool or you made it into something else? It's upstairs in my, my crafting room. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. It's a little bin. That's cool. That's cool. That's exciting. There's something else I wanted to, I think mainly just because I loved this idea, like it's mild woman related, but I think you might have mentioned something about mild woman kind of being a little bit of like antithesis to wild woman as like a concept. Yeah, there's, there's something um, that I find really kind of interesting about um, uh, kind of inverting a a wild woman archetype, because um, especially right now in the kind of like space and time we're in, um, you know, just 2018, the world's gone to shit. Um, women yeah. are women or also just, um, uh, so many other, uh, communities, um, minorities, it's, I'm just not, you know, we're maybe feeling, um, kind of attacked. And I think there's this, this lean into an embrace of, um, this kind of uncaged, like kind of witch archetype, right. Of, 
um, someone who uh, doesn't care about, um, you know, um, you know, what others necessarily think of her and just does have this kind of like wild kind of tornado energy. Um, and I think that that's really powerful. That can be really radical and transformative. But I also um, uh, think there's something really kind of interesting about thinking of, um, you know, a woman instead who is maybe immensely powerful, but um, maybe being more um, like mindful or conscious of how she is expending that energy and like uh, concentrating it and putting it out there. Um, I don't know if you watched, um, have you seen this Netflix show, Wild Wild Country? No. Oh man. Okay. So it's amazing. Go watch it. <laughs> it's, about, it's about this, like, it's about this, uh, this Indian cult that kind of bubbled up and came up in the eighties. Um, and, uh, they're, they're still around, but there's this, uh, this woman and it's a documentary, by the way, I can't remember if I said that. So, um, there's this woman, Sheila, who is essentially the, the woman and the brains behind this entire cult. Like they were, they were in India and then they, um, picked up and moved the cult to Oregon and the guru and the cult tried to put down roots and like expand this into this like you know they, they had this idea of this like utopian vision of transforming the world um, you know based on uh, their vision of transforming consciousness like really powerful idea but the cult did a bunch of super shady shit so it's like it's a really interesting um, documentary but the reason I wanted to mention that is just because the the kind of this character of Sheila is just so fascinating to me because she has this kind of wild woman energy and like towards like the last, the last two episodes or so where um, she's indicted on criminal charges. Um, she ends up going to prison for a while. Um, but the way that the media was uh, portraying her, like someone found, you know, photos of her, you know, out there naked, just like enjoying the sun on her boobs, right? Like just enjoying life. Or um, there was a lot of uh, like sex and like unchained sex in um, in this cult. So like there's this entire like th this very like sexualized, like evil archetype thrown onto Sheila. And I think in a lot of ways she embraced that. But um, but I look at that about the, the way that we kind of as a society love to, um, you know, take a woman with this kind of like wild energy um and kind of portray her as like the witch or the other or just kind of evil um and uh and then yeah what's what's the antithesis to that what's a woman who still has kind of all of that power um but is smarter than the people who would want to portray her as that other right who can like kind of <clears throat> navigate um uh you know, the society or world we live in with this kind of like mild, subdued energy um, is super strong, uh, but also really kind of flexible and malleable. Um, anyway, all that to say, like all of these different kinds of um, thoughts or energies feel like they can be really embodied in, in knitting, um, right. in wool, like as a fiber, right? Like right. Um, right. malleable, strong, but still really soft. Um, you know, oh. this... Uh, yeah, right like sorry I didn't just putting all the words together in that way I, you know like malleable but strong but soft I didn't even you know and you know these things about wool but I didn't really think about it until you put it into the context of talking about this the, the mild yeah, yeah it's just yeah. It, yeah. it was just kind of a word that or a phrase that came to me like I said a, a while ago but then when I really kind of settled into it and, and, and meditated on what that actually means um, 
that that's kind of what I, I keep in my head of like, you know, it, she's this kind of other woman, right, who is, uh, in my mind, the person I'd, I'd want to be, like, the woman who's, like, super cool yeah. under pressure, powerful, uh, doesn't give a shit, and is just doing her thing. And I think it's a whole nother conversation to talk about how to take this very gendered, traditional, you mm-hmm. know, quote-unquote female craft yep. and yep. make it very powerful, which, you know, a million people had a conversation about at this point, re-pussy hats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for me, that was something very early on that spoke to me about knitting before I even, like, fully realized the power of it was just for a person who stares all day at a computer screen and, like, works in an office where you have to be competitive and coming home and owning this whole different kind of creative entity, which like just said is, you know, it's powerful, it's geometric, it's soft, it's cuddly, it's cozy, but really taking that and feeling empowered by it and stronger because of it. Mm. Um, and not like it is this thing that I'm expected to do or forced to do because I'm a woman. There's something really powerful yep. about, about that as well. Yeah. And just transforming the language of knitting, right? Like everybody still thinks about it. Not everybody, but a lot of people still think about it as this thing that like your grandma does and it's super cutesy. And there's, there's a ton of that, right? But like to think about what knitwear can look like for our generation, um, for people who are trying to transform the world and like uh, take more control over, um, you know, other parts of their lives, right? It's, it's not just the slow food movement. It's also the slow fashion movement. It's, it's all these different things, um, you know, and uh, I think knitting in some ways has, has been kind of at the forefront of some of those kind of conversations and politics for a long time, but in many other ways, um, you know, only seen with the re- release of the resist hat and some pushback I've even gotten from people who, I don't know, are just kind of haters of anything progressive, right? Yeah, I think it just underscores how, um, how much work we have to do. Yeah. Yeah, speak, absolutely. Speak, speak absolutely. quietly. Speak quietly and carry a big set of knitting needles. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Ooh, I kind of want to leave it on that. I I don't have anything to add that would make that any nicer than it just was. So, <laughs> thank you so much for being here, both of you. It's really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, you Thanks, Annie. Thank you so much. You've just listened to episode thirty-seven of the Close Knit Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a review and rating on iTunes and supporting the podcast for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Patrons get access to additional content and sneak peeks at upcoming months' podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Till next time.